Legacy Podcasts present Torque, a novel by Ty Drago, performed for you by the author, and featuring music by Nicholas Allen Nelson. The 37th Cog. When the keepers arrived to collect them, Ainsley was at Lucy's bedside. As the beaten lower girl slid in and out of consciousness, faint words spilled from beneath her bleeding lips. Rand. What, Lucy? Ainsley asked gently. Rand. He's not here. He's coming. What? Lucy slipped away again. Ainsley was almost envious. Maybe the lower girl would be too far gone to know when they hanged her. I'll be dead soon, she thought bitterly. And Baird was going to make Gerard watch. In the last 24 hours, she'd lost her father, her brother, and her home. Frederick and Eunice had lost their lives. So had Eunice's sister and her entire family. Also, one of her oldest friends had heartlessly betrayed her, all because Ainsley just had to find the truth. Except she didn't regret it. Not any of it. Jai, she whispered. It was the first time she truly prayed since before her mother had died. Is this really the machine you wanted to make? All this deceit and betrayal? My mother always told me that you watched over us, cared for us, but then you took her away from me, and I think that's when I stopped believing in you. I've heard it said that people find religion in the last moments of their life. That always seemed cheap to me, but now I get it. It's really not about a stupid last-minute bid for salvation. It's about some kind of closure. I'm not asking for a miracle. Just a favor. Please, look after my little brother. He's only five, and he's already seen things that no one should have to. And now they're going to make him watch his sister hang. I don't know if you can do anything about it. Or if you even want to. I'm not even sure you can hear me. But please, please help him. Then she hung her head and, clinging to her promise never to cry again, cried anyway. She cried until her chest ached and her throat felt raw from thirst. And when she was done, she sat on the floor beside the cot, exhausted and broken. Ainsley? Was the voice real or just inside her head? Ainsley, I'm with you. Jai? She whispered. Ainsley? She looked up to find Lucy looking at her. Her damaged face made the lower girl's expression hard to read, but Ainsley didn't think the usual anger and resentment were there. This Lucy seemed softer somehow. I'm with you, she whispered through her swollen lips. Then she opened her arms. Sobbing again, Ainsley fell into the lower girl's embrace, which was the way the keepers found them. Well, isn't this a pretty sight, one of them remarked as he opened the door. There were four of them this time. One wore sergeant's epaulets on his shoulders. Enjoying a last hug, the first one smirked. Well, don't worry. We have links a rope that'll hug you both nice and tight. Shut up, Grant, the sergeant snapped. Then he faced the prisoners. Ainsley Pinkerton and Lucy Stamper, you are to be taken from here to the market plaza for public execution. For this purpose, your hands will be manacled and you'll be led through the streets behind a carriage. If you resist, your feet will be shackled as well and you'll be dragged. Do you intend to resist? Was this some sort of formality? If so, it seemed profoundly stupid. No, she muttered. The sergeant looked expectantly at Lucy. Nope, the lower girl said. Can you walk? Ainsley asked her. I think so. Except she couldn't. 
The moment she stood, her eyes rolled back and she would have toppled over if Ainsley had not gotten under her arm to support her. At least she was lighter than Rand. That thought brought with it a fresh stab of grief. One of the keepers stepped forward with manacles. I can't help her with those on, Ainsley told him. Then you'll wear them and we'll drag her, he replied with a tight-lipped smile. Ainsley glared at him. Do that in her condition, and she'll die before we get to the plaza. Then your pig of a commandant can hang a corpse. How do you think that'll look? The keeper cursed and raised his fist, but the sergeant intervened. Manacle them together so that Miss Pinkerton can support the bowels rat. Where's my brother? Ainsley demanded as their shackles were fastened. Don't know, don't care, the keeper replied flatly. They were led up through the keep's dark prison levels. When they reached the main floor and exited the building, Ainsley found herself wincing against the overbright afternoon sunshine. At the curb stood an austere open carriage. Chain him up, the sergeant commanded, settling himself on the driver's bench. The keepers obeyed, marching Ainsley, still supporting Lucy, to the rear of the conveyance, where their shared manacles were fastened to a brace above its rear axle. Lucy, who'd come back to herself somewhat, swayed on her feet, but remained standing. Without ceremony, the driver declared, on! On a normal day, the market plaza was a ten-minute walk from the keep. But today wasn't normal. With every step, manacles dug into Ainsley's wrists, chafing at first, then drawing blood. Lucy, who seemed to be staying conscious by sheer will alone, stumbled frequently, earning them threats or kicks from the surrounding keepers. Ainsley, in a haze of pain and fear, lost all track of time. The sunlit streets were alive with upper folk just going about their day, walking and talking, laughing and playing. Many were on their way to the plaza, no doubt fairly bursting with excitement about today's mandatory rally. As for the injustice of it, well, most of these good people would give that as much thought as any other unfortunate matter. Which was to say, none at all. Many watched with interest as the carriage and its prisoners went past. No one protested the cruelty of the march. After all, the authorities knew what they were doing. Whatever state these girls were in, they must deserve it. Besides, what a dinner topic it would make. I'm not sure if I hate these people or pity them, Ainsley whispered to Lucy. If it's all the same to you, the lower girl replied thickly, I'm going with hate. Shut up, one of the keepers snapped. Several agonizing minutes later, the market plaza came into view. And there, standing tall and sinister near its center, stood the gallows. Freshly erected, it was simply a raised dais featuring an A-frame crossbeam structure from which hung two hemp nooses. There was also a gleaming brass lever that Ainsley supposed operated the trap doors beneath those nooses. Thousands of upper folk surrounded the dais, all jostling to get as close to the action as they could. At the prisoner's arrival, an excited murmur moved through the crowd. Today's show was about to begin. Ainsley and Lucy were half-dragged up the dais stairs. Their manacles were removed from one another and refastened individually. Then each was forced to stand behind her respective noose. Lucy trembled, but remained standing. Ainsley wondered vaguely what the keepers would do if the lower girl collapsed. Facing forward, she gazed over the crowd. Thousands of eyes stared back at her. Some were faces she knew, classmates, neighbors, her father's private business partners. But no one met her gaze with recognition. Only keen interest and zero empathy. Ainsley considered pleading her case, throwing out accusations of mass murder and tyranny against Gammon and Baird. But what was the point? Did she really think these pampered upper folk would spontaneously rise up to save them? The sergeant, having dismounted the carriage, fitted the noose around Ainsley's neck, pulling its thick knot tightly against the base of her skull. This'll be fast, he said, not altogether unkindly. A drop and a quick snap. After that, you won't know anything. 
Ainsley didn't thank him. Gammon's voice boomed through a speaker's box, flooding the entire plaza. Upper folk! Ainsley gazed half-heartedly at the market lift platform. There stood the commandant. His dark eyes surveyed the crowd, keepers and prisoners, finding it all satisfactory. Beside him, still wearing her sashes of office, but with half her face bandaged, Baird appeared more reserved. And beside her stood Gerard. The boy had been dressed in a Sunday suit obviously confiscated from his own closet at home. He cut quite a dashing little figure, though his face, wet with tears, ruined the look. At first glance, he seemed to be holding Baird's hand. But in reality, the woman had him by the wrist, a manacle of flesh. Gammon continued speaking. Only hours ago, the criminal Torque ended his seditious existence by throwing himself down the drop, just yards from where I'm standing, but not before conspiring with traitors to assassinate Lord August Pinkerton, one of our most important personages. Today, we shall right that wrong. He paused then, as if waiting for applause. When little came, he seemed put out. Without ceremony, he gave the speaker's box to the proctor, who accepted it in the hand that wasn't gripping a helpless five-year-old boy. Her style of speech-making was less grandiose, more polished. Friends, while Commandant Gammon is right to cheer Torque's final defeat, this isn't a day for celebration. In moments, we will be forced to execute two young women. The first is a lower spy who had a hand in poor Lord Pinkerton's murder. The other is Lord Pinkerton's own daughter, who betrayed that great man to his assassins. Ainsley didn't bother denying it. Without the benefit of the speaker's box, only the closest people would hear her. And even they wouldn't believe. Today's tragic events have driven home the threat we all face from dissident factions among the lower folk. For this reason, let me reintroduce the unprecedented invention that captured the elusive Torque and will now be sent down the drop to guard us from these traitors. I give you Grabber. Gammon shouted, Grabber, come! The mechanical monster appeared, slithering over the lip of the drop, to cries of shock and alarm by the upper folk. Coil by coil, the Vindicator's massive iron body scraped over the railing and up onto the plaza. Its great head swiveled to and fro, its fiery eyes seeing everything. Gammon had obviously kept it waiting down there, just below the lip of the drop. This was all theater. Please calm yourselves, Baird said in a confident, patient tone. Commandant Gammon has complete control over the invention. Then, as the murmurs gradually died down, she continued. Once the condemned have been sent on their way, Grabber shall be sent on its way. It will journey down to the middle market, where it will seek out the subversive elements among the lower folk and dispense justice. This time the murmurs were uneasy. The full meaning of the proctor's statement wasn't lost on at least some of the crowd. Nodding, Baird said, I know, my friends. But this is not a step that we have taken lightly. Lord Pinkerton's murder has made it clear that none of us, not our persons, nor our property, nor our children, will ever be secure until the dissidents are dealt with. I truly wish there was another way. I'm sorry, Lucy, Ainsley said. I would have liked to have known you better. When no response came, Ainsley was afraid the lower girl had passed out and was now strangling in her noose. But then Lucy replied weakly, You got guts, upper girl. I can see why he likes you. Likes? Ainsley noticed. Present tense. On the lift platform, Gammon took back the speaker's box. We offer no blindfolds, traitor. We're not afraid to see your dying faces. We ask for no final words, as they would be empty and pointless. Is the executioner ready? I am, sir, a keeper declared. To Ainsley's dismay, it was Percy, now proudly wearing a lieutenant's uniform. 
As he mounted the dais, Ainsley noticed that his face, like Bear's, was heavily bandaged. With luck, Lucy's knife slash had permanently scarred him. He didn't even glance at the condemned as he stepped up and took hold of the brass lever. I'm sorry, Ainsley thought miserably. She wasn't even sure what for. Suddenly, something exploded out of the drop. At first, Ainsley couldn't tell what it was. It moved too fast, but the crowd's reaction was both immediate and dramatic, and this time it wasn't murmurs. It was shrieks. Fingers started pointing, past her and up, and up, and up. Ainsley craned her neck as far as the noose would permit. She saw Lucy do the same thing, though less steadily. So did Percy and the other keepers on the platform. Their respective roles in this horrific drama momentarily forgotten, all of them stared skyward in slack-jawed astonishment. At a man. A golden man. A flying golden man. He streaked across the sky, soaring in a wide, fast circle above the whole of the plaza, before suddenly pausing in mid-flight. He hovered now, maybe a hundred feet above the gallows. In his hands, he held a shining, gilded pipe. Someone, somewhere yelled, It's Torque! Rand! Lucy whispered. The golden figure abruptly descended, diving headfirst toward them. The man's physique was familiar, Ainsley noticed, still too stunned to hope. Rand's broad shoulders and chest, Rand's muscled arms. But the armor was completely different. Gone were the plates of overlapping metal. This torque, if that was really who he was, appeared to have been dipped in molten gold and left to dry. Ainsley couldn't imagine how he could even move. But move he did not so much landing atop the dais as colliding with it. He hit feet first in the narrow space between where the two girls stood trussed and noosed. Then he dropped instantly to one knee and slammed his pipe against the metal floor like a smith's hammer. Ainsley felt the vibration and for one terrible moment worried that the trapdoors might be sprung, but that didn't happen. What did happen was a shock wave. It radiated outward from the point of impact and with such force that every single keeper on the dais, Percy included, was literally thrown off of it. Many landed atop members of the crowd, causing people to scream and scatter and generally adding to the already feverish pandemonium. Keepers, Gammon called through the speaker's box. Move in, all of you, take him! As the crowd began fleeing the plaza like rats from a fire, at least twenty armed keepers converged on the dais. Seeing this, Torque slipped behind Ainsley just long enough to tap her manacles with his pipe. Then he did the same for Lucy. Get out of here, he told them both. The voice sent a chill of recognition down Ainsley's spine. As Lucy struggled to extract herself from her noose, Ainsley simply stared down at her now unshackled hands. Her manacles had been melted, the iron clearly glowing, yet her skin was unburned. A week ago it would have been inexplicable, but now she thought she kenned. Magic. Very old magic. Torque, meanwhile, launched himself at the Keeper Vanguard. His first pipe swing knocked ten of them aside as if they were toy soldiers, then an eleventh, standing just out of range, managed to fire his pistol point-blank into the gilded man's chest. Ainsley gasped, but the bullet simply vanished into the gold armor, which rippled, the way a pool of water will ripple when something small and inconsequential is dropped into it. Wordlessly, the gilded man raised his pipe. A burst of white steam shot forth, scalding the keeper's face and blasting him a dozen feet backward. More came, filling the space left behind by the fleeing crowd. As they charged, Torque calmly greased the plaza floor, sending the men slipping and crashing into each other. More shots were fired. More bullets melted against his armor. One man got close enough to bring his saber down on Torque's head, only to have his blade shatter against the golden helm. Torque then casually tossed the fellow away. He tumbled ten feet through the air before slamming into the plaza floor. Send for reinforcements, Gammon screamed. 
Ainsley pulled her eyes away from their inexplicable savior. Once again, she draped Lucy's arm over her shoulders and led them toward the dais staircase, only to stop two steps later. A figure in a hooded cloak blocked their path. When Ainsley's eyes widened in alarm, the figure hurriedly pulled back the cloak and held out a hand. Come on, Penelope said urgently. I've got a carriage waiting. Julia's face flashed through Ainsley's mind. She hesitated, torn between the desire, the need, to trust one of her oldest friends and the bitter knowledge of what her other oldest friend had done to her. Then Proctor Baird announced something through the speaker's box that made up Ainsley's mind for her. Don't even think of trying to escape, Ainsley. Remember, I still have Gerard with me. The 38th Cog With every move Rand made, more mind doors opened. It was his link to the machine that was doing this. The longer he remained connected to it, as long as he wore this new armor, the more he learned. He didn't know exactly how he can that fact, but as he swung his pipe, knocking the three nearest keepers off their feet with a single blow, before firing off a burst of steam that sent a half dozen more running for cover, he definitely did ken it. The machine, ancient power and forgotten energy. It had chosen him as its new torque years ago, perhaps even before the beginning of his remembered life. Rand can that much too. And as such, there would be no further need for cartridges, no more upper mech. He was torque, truly torque, and his pipe would never run empty. It all seemed as natural, as necessary as breathing. All of these new abilities just came to him, flowing through his expanding mind like water through a pipe. Turning in a circle, he scanned the plaza for further threats and found none. At least thirty keepers lay scattered across the metal floor, either unconscious or otherwise incapacitated. A few were bleeding, though none, Rand saw to his relief, very badly. Torque didn't dead. The rest of them were fleeing with the crowd. Rand checked the dais where Ainsley and Lucy were confronting Penelope Crowley. His own surprise at the upper lass's unexpected arrival seemed trumped by Ainsley's, who stared at her friend as if she'd turned into a grabber. And speaking of grabbers... Rand looked toward the Vindicator, which was still on the lift platform, motionless, perhaps awaiting orders that the Commandant had so far been too stunned to issue. Gammon stared in disbelief at his fallen soldiers, then glared at the Proctor when she took the speaker's box away from him. But who was that beside the Proctor? A Ludling. Was that vicious, conniving upper lady actually a mother? Then Baird spoke. Don't even think of trying to escape, Ainsley. Remember, I have Gerard with me. Gerard Pinkerton. Rand watched the blood drain from Ainsley's face. She whirled away from Penelope and Lucy, making as if to jump off the dais and hurry to her brother's aid. Brave, but pretty much a death sentence. Ainsley, he called. She stared at him, her face a mask of desperate panic. He said, Take care of Lucy. I'll get him. Ainsley visibly swallowed. Then she nodded. And Rand flew. As with everything else about being Torque, flying felt both amazing and weirdly natural. Rand had learned that lesson in the first minute as he'd hurtled himself up the drop. Golden energy had surged off him, illuminating the surrounding walls, as if the machine itself were lighting his way. It had been incredible. For just a moment, he'd paused at the middle and gazed out over the market. Inevitably, some lower folks spotted him. At first, they'd only stared, many doing almost comical double-takes but then they began to cheer. Dozens, then hundreds, until every lud and lass in the market, except maybe for a certain sweetmeats trader, had joined in. Torque! Torque! It was a nice feeling. 
With a brief and, he hoped, humble wave, he continued upward, leaving the raucous cheers behind. Good thing, too. If he'd delayed for even another few seconds, Lucy and Ainsley would have hanged. If flying is easy was Rand's first lesson as Torque, then here was the second. Never stop for the pat on the back. Now, as he hurtled himself across the plaza, Rand kept one eye on Grabber, who made no move to intercept him. But that would change on the say-so of the big lud on the platform, whose glare fired daggers at Torque's approaching form. As Rand landed, the Commandant, with Proctor Baird and Gerard beside him, drew his pistol. Wordlessly, he leveled it at Rand's mask and fired. The bullet struck Rand right between the eyes. He felt no impact. Instead, as it had on the plaza, the whole of Rand's new armor warmed and seemed to swim across his body. Then it hardened again. Gammon demanded, What are you? Pretty much exactly what you think I am, Rand replied. The Commandant dropped the now useless pistol and, moving with surprising speed, grabbed hold of Gerard's arm, wrenching him savagely out of the Proctor's grasp. Ainsley's little brother screamed. Gammon pressed a dagger to the Ludling's throat. I'll kill this whelp! He exclaimed through clenched teeth. I believe you, Rand said. Take off that armor. Or whatever it is. No, Rand replied. Do it or he dies. If that Ludling dies, you lose your leverage, Rand pointed out, speaking reasonably. Then you're mine. Gammon paused, considering. Beside him, Proctor Baird hadn't budged. Her face was ashen, her lips compressed in a tight line. Around them, the lift platform stood empty, their retinue of guards having been sent after the lowest champion, and dropped like all the rest. I'm warning you, the Commandant hissed. He dug the point into Gerard's neck, drawing a bead of blood. The Ludling wailed in terror. Rand said nothing. Gammon railed. I'll give you to the count of five. Five, Rand said. Do it, Lud. Let's see what happens next. The man didn't move. Rand nodded. This is what I think they call a standoff. The Commandant grinned savagely. Not quite. Grabber, go down to the middle market and kill everyone you find there. Instantly, the Vindicator's eyes flashed. Its enormous coiled body turned, scraping against the metal floor as it neared the lip of the drop. Rand pushed aside a rising terror, raised his pipe, and fired a blast of grease. It hit all three of them, the Commandant, the Proctor, and the Pinkertonling, hard enough to knock them off their feet. With a cry of outrage, Gammon lost his grip on the knife. Rand moved, closing the distance in the blink of an eye and scooping up Gerard. The Ludling was soaked in oil, his fancy upper clothes ruined, his eyes wide with shock and fear. It's solid, Rand told him. I've got you. Ainsley, the Ludling wailed. She's solid too. I want her. I know, Rand said, watching in horror as Grabber slithered over the railing and down into the drop. It had a mile to travel, a mile of straight walls with only broken bits of pipes, jutting ledges, and cables to use along the way. The Vindicator had no hands, but then neither did its flesh-and-blood counterparts, and they were known to be excellent climbers. He had to stop it, but not with a boy in his arms. Hang on, he said. Rand launched himself. He didn't fly as fast as he could. With the Ludling in his grasp, he didn't dare. He simply lifted his feet off the floor and floated upright away from the platform. Ainsley, Lucy, and the Crowley lass were crossing the middle market as quickly as Lucy's injuries would allow. Nearly everyone else had fled. A few of the keepers looked like they might be recovering, but Rand didn't think they posed any immediate threat. The moment he touched down in front of them, Ainsley ran forward and snatched her little brother out of Rand's arms. Torque saved me!' the Ludling squealed. He was bathed in grease and his neck bled a little where Gammon had nicked him, but it didn't seem to have curbed his enthusiasm. "'I know he did,' Ainsley replied tearfully. "'We flew! Did you see us fly?' "'I saw. 
Of course I saw. Her green eyes found Rand's. Thank you. He nodded and turned to see Lucy staring up at him. The lass was swaying on her feet, her face a ruin of bruises. Seeing her, Rand felt an almost visceral rush of anger, and he was suddenly glad that there were no keepers nearby on whom to vent it. Torque didn't dead. He didn't. But still. Amazingly, Lucy smiled up at him. Then she said in a slurred voice, I know it's you, moron. Before Rand knew he was going to do it, the torque mask slid back from his face. It didn't come off. None of this would ever come off. He knew that as surely as he knew how to fly and fight. Torque's armor was a part of him now. But that didn't mean he couldn't hide it. The golden warmth slid back from his eyes and nose and mouth, moving with the consistency of oil. It withdrew as far as his ears, where it stopped and pooled, as if ready and waiting to come right back when called. Rand noted this as he noted everything about being Torque, with a certain inexplicable familiarity. Then he forgot all about it, scooped Lucy up in his arms, and gently kissed her. Truth be told, he wanted to do it more than gently, but didn't think her face could handle it. As it was, the lower lass groaned a little, though it didn't keep her from cupping his face and kissing him right back. Given the circumstances, it was a great kiss. When they parted, Rand noticed Ainsley, who still clutched her brother fiercely. There was a look on the upper lass's face that Rand couldn't decipher. He told them all, Gammon sent Grabber down the drop. I've got to go after it. Do it, Lucy replied. Make sure nothing happens to Jatter. Then her eyes rolled back, and she collapsed in his arms. Lucy. Ainsley handed Gerard to Penelope and tested Lucy's neck with two fingers. Her pulse is weak. She needs medical attention. I know a place. This came from the Crowley lass. But we have to get her to my carriage. Rand could feel precious seconds slipping by. How far had that monster already traveled down the drop? A quarter mile? Half? But this was Lucy. Show us, he said, quick. They left the plaza at a full run. As they did, Gammon's voice boomed. Go where you want. My men will hunt you down. Ainsley took back her brother and said, We can't risk going to your house, Penny, or mine. I know. I've taken care of it, Penelope promised. She led them around a corner to where a carriage stood parked. A genuine carriage. Rand had heard of such things, of course. He'd even spotted a few during his last trip to the uppers. But this was the first he'd seen close up. It was as big as some flops in the lowers, basically a fancy iron box on wheels. There were two doors on each side, which let passengers into what he supposed would be a luxurious interior, with chairs. Upper folk in their chairs. The carriage's front end sported a driver's bench, with levers and dials and a waist-high wheel for steering. The cranked mech that served at its engine was nowhere obvious. Maybe that funny lump on the back of the thing hid the workings. If there'd been more time, Rand might have asked. Hurry, Ainsley exclaimed. Get her inside. As Penelope Corelli waved, a man in a black suit and billed cap jumped off the driver's bench and, bowing, opened the door for them. Thank you, Perkins, the Crowley lass said absently. Yeah, Rand added. Thanks. Perkins took in his golden head-to-toe armor and visibly stiffened. It's all right, Ainsley assured him. Yes, her little brother chimed in. He's Tork. The driver didn't reply, but only stepped aside as Rand came forward with Lucy's limp body in his arms. The inside of the carriage was even grander than Rand had imagined. He couldn't have named the plush fabric covering the seats, though whatever it was seemed cleaner and certainly softer than anything his own butt had ever touched, something else he didn't ask about. For now, all he did was tenderly lay Lucy down atop it. I'll take care of her, Ainsley said. I promise. I believe you, Rand said. Then he turned to go. As he did, Ainsley seized his wrist, flesh against gold. She said desperately, 
Are you really him? She had beautiful eyes. Was it wrong to notice that, given the fact he just gets Lucy? I'm really him, he replied. Now, help Lucy. Then Rand leapt skyward once more. The 39th Cog Down the drop again, though for the first time deliberately. Rand overflew the nearly empty plaza, passing Gammon and Baird, both of them bathed in black grease. The proctor and commandant glared up at him, their expressions hostile and calculating. But Rand was moving too fast to notice. Carrying Lucy to that carriage had cost him. Worse, it might have cost others, too. He dove over the lip and headed down into darkness, scanning the walls for the Vindicator. A hundred yards passed. Two hundred. Nothing. No hint of movement. Grabber had gotten further than he'd hoped. Rand put on as much speed as he could until the walls flashed past him. Still no sign of the monster. Could it have lost its grip and fallen? Was it now a dozen tons of scrap iron at the bottom of the drop? Then he thought, since when am I that lucky? Rand was nearing the middle when he heard the screams. He cursed himself. Why hadn't he warned them on the way up? Because if he had, Ainsley and Lucy would be dead. Rand exploded out of the upper drop and instantly cut right, soaring over the first row of shops. And there, near the market center, was Grabber, looking even bigger in this enclosed space. It loomed over hundreds of lower folk who scattered before it. As Rand closed the distance, the monster's huge jaws slashed downward, scooping up three random luds before clamping shut and not gently, as it had with him in the boutique district. Despite his angle and distance, Rand spotted blood oozing out from between Grabber's teeth. Three dead, at least, because he'd been slow. Guilt fueled his anger as he shot past the Vindicator's tail and along the tapered bulk of its segmented body. Then, whipping up under its chin, Rand slammed it with his pipe, putting everything he had into the blow. And everything he had was not insignificant, with a roar of surprise, Grabber's head snapped up. The impact rang up Rand's arm, almost knocking him out of the air. Careening away, he steadied his flight and turned upward, missing the roof of a cobbler shop by inches. It's Torque! Someone shouted. This was followed by cheers. Rand wished they wouldn't cheer him. He wasn't even sure he could do this. Cutting a tight circle above the maze of shops, Rand attacked again. This time, however, Grabber was ready. Its huge head lashed out toward him, mouth open, iron teeth caked with the gore of its kills. Instinctively, Rand braked in midair, letting the jaws snap shut on the spot he would have occupied if he kept going. The Vindicator's fiery eyes flashed with almost sentient frustration. Steam issued from its huge iron nostrils, each of which was large enough for Rand to stick an arm into. He couldn't blind the Vindicator with steam as he had Rat, not with the thick glass that had been bolted over its eye holes. But that didn't mean he couldn't distract it. Raising his pipe, Rand fired a blast of sticky grease into the monster's face. Then, as Grabber roared and thrashed its head, Rand flew straight up, swallowing altitude, before diving back down and slamming into the top of the Vindicator's skull hard enough to hammer it down to the market floor. The impact shook half the knot, drawing panicked cries from the closest lower folk. Its long body writhed, flattening nearby stalls that Rand could only pray were empty. He took to the air again, intending to hammer down on it once more, Maybe if he could crack its skull. That's when Grabber's tail whipped around and hit him. Rand never saw it coming. The blow hurtled him through one storefront, out the back, across the aisle behind it, and into another storefront before his inertia was finally spent. He finished up on the floor of a grocery with various factory-grown fruits and vegetables raining down on him. His vision swam. Get up, he told himself, but his body wouldn't move. His whole left side felt like one big bruise. 
Somewhere nearby, Grabber roared, and more people screamed. That jarred him out of his shock-induced stupor. Groaning, he pushed aside heads of lettuce and broken bits of melon before staggering to his feet. Nearby, the traitor, an aging lower lass, stared at him in terrified wonder. Sorry, he muttered. Torque, she replied in a reverent whisper. Root be with you. Not sure how to reply to that. Rand smiled awkwardly and launched himself. The Vindicator had returned to its mission, cutting a path of destruction through the market. Lower folk fled in all directions, and, from what Rand could see, their panic might actually be saving lives. Having so many targets at all points of the compass seemed to be confusing it. Even so, the metal monster managed to kill two more before Rand got there. This time, he didn't hit it. If the vegetable stall had taught him anything, it was that the brute force method, his go-to for most of his life, wouldn't cut it here. Instead, he whipped past the monster's face, catching its attention so that its huge head and fiery eyes followed him. Come on, you big dunghole. Come get me. Grabber struck at him, quick as its namesake, but Rand dodged and kept going, flying at half speed toward the drop. The Vindicator pursued, flattening more shops and stalls in the process. Rand flew in a tight, serpentine pattern, walking a fine line between keeping the monster's interest and staying out of its reach. Twice more the jaws snapped at him, and twice more he evaded. Barely. Rand knew he couldn't keep this up for long. Fortunately, he wouldn't have to. The lip of the drop was thirty yards away, which allowed him precious seconds, during which to firm up what he wasn't ready to label as a plan. Torque, someone called. Two someones, actually, speaking in unison. Rand spotted Jad and Jared. The twins were in the aisle directly below him, right in the path of the thundering monster at his heels. Around them, lower folk darted to and fro, most in blind panic. Only the Yanseys seemed to be standing still. They'd managed to find weapons. Jad brandished a rusted loading hook, probably swiped from one of the factories. But Jared had done him one better, having found what looked like an old keeper's saber, which he brandished with much more bravado than skill. Get out of the way, Rand called to them. But the Ludlings either hadn't heard him or weren't listening. An instant later, Rand overshot them, forcing him to cut a sharp 180-degree turn. But it was already too late. Grabber had been pursuing Rand with a gadget's single-mindedness, not bothering with the aisles between shops, but simply hammering through rows, leaving a wide, ragged path of destruction in his wake. Now it was bearing down on the twins. Both stood their ground, weapons at the ready. Never run from a fight. That was what Rand used to tell them back when he was alive. They were just doing what he would do, what Torque would do. Rand kenned with sinking horror that he'd never reach them in time. A third figure dashed out of one of the shops in the Vindicator's path, scooped up both Ludlings, and ducked into a tent across the aisle, managing it all with barely a second to spare. The Vindicator roared past the spot where they'd been, having apparently noticed neither the twins nor their last-minute rescue. For a moment, Rand allowed himself an almost blinding rush of relief. It turned out to be a moment too long. A stream of noxious fluid spewed from the monster's open mouth, soaking him as thoroughly as any blast of grease. Instantly, Rand felt his limbs stiffening. Of course, grabber venom. His buoyancy slipped away like the wind between his fingers as Rand's legs and arms turned to stone. He fell, landing heavily in the middle of the aisle, face up. The impact jarred him. His entire body sizzled with pain. If it was possible for a gadget to grin in triumph, Grabber did so. It reared up over its helpless prey, its fiery eyes aglow. Rand struggled to move, but the venom's grip was too potent. In a few seconds, that enormous maw would close around him and he'd die the same way as so many other lower folk today. Oddly, the person he thought of first was no name. After this, the poor little Ludling, or God, or whatever, would be alone again. He thought, 
I'm sorry I was such a lousy torque. Something struck the vindicator in his left eye. Rand couldn't tell what it was, a hunk of scrap metal probably, but with enough heft to crack the thick glass guarding the monster's eye socket. In response, Grabber turned reflexively away, roared in anger and perhaps pain. An instant later, Jared appeared. Having thrown the scrap, the Ludling now jumped over Rand's inert body without so much as a glance and continued across the aisle. He was waving his arms as Rand had been, drawing the monster's attention. No. But while he screamed the word inside his mind, Rand couldn't move his jaw and actually say it out loud. Grabber turned his huge segmented body away from Rand, launching himself at the shop into which Jared had ducked. But while Rand couldn't turn his head to see what happened next, he heard the high-pitched shriek of rent metal. Hands seized his wrists. Suddenly he was moving, being dragged in the opposite direction. Utterly paralyzed, all he could do was stare helplessly up at the knot's distant ceiling, his mind churning. Jared had distracted Grabber, and now Jad and someone else were using the distraction to pull him out of harm's way. To swipe him. It was a trick the twins played frequently, though this was the first time Rand himself had been the scam's prize. They dragged him through a tent flap and into an otherwise empty shop. There, wrapped in heavy shadows, two faces filled Rand's field of vision. One of them was Jad, which didn't surprise him. The other was the sweetmeats trader, which did. Is he dead? The Ludling asked desperately. The trader examined Rand's armored body. Hard to tell. He's gold head to foot. Then he put his palm on Rand's lips and added, At least he's breathing. Jad's thin, pale face was slick with sweat. Tork! he exclaimed, doing his best to shake Rand's shoulders. You have to get up. That thing's after my brother. And Rand tried. But no amount of effort would let him so much as twitch a finger. Jad pulled his hands away, staring at his palms. My arms are starting to feel funny. Cursing, the trader yanked the Ludling back, wiping frantically at Jad's hands with an old rag. Grabber poison. I shouldn't have let you touch him. But he has to wake up. Then a crash sounded somewhere nearby, followed by a wail of pain and terror that froze Rand's heart solid. Jared! Jad cried. He made a dash for the tent flap, but the trader caught him. You can't help him, the lower Lud said miserably. That monster's deading my brother! Jad exclaimed, fighting the trader's grip like a panicked animal. It's deading a lot of people. The trader replied, and Rand saw tears in the Lud's eyes. There's nothing we can do. Rand thought, there's something I can do. His armor began to glow. The real Torque is reborn, but will he be in time? Find out in the next episode of Torque by Ty Drago. If you just can't stand the wait, the full novel is available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon.com. Thanks for listening.